That's what the ten spies got their eyes on. They emphasized the em enemies. They emphasized the opposition. They emphasized the hardships. And they said, it's too much for us. We cannot do it. That's what they did. Open your Bible, please, to Exodus chapter 3. Folks at home, would you open your Bible too? Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the land of milk and honey. Milk and honey really sound nice to our ears. It sort of gives us the idea of comfort and luxury. But um, more than that, milk and honey actually apparently have some powerful ingredients that offer several promising health benefits. In particular, they may help improve someone's sleep quality and enhance bone strength and promote heart health. And there's other things as well. Uh, but in reference here in the story, we're talking about the promised land. Now for the Jews, if you said, where's the promised land? They'd point to the land of Israel, wouldn't they? That's the promised land because that's what God was wanting for the people of Israel, the Jews. And he described it to Moses as a place of milk and honey. Now, um, interestingly enough, the Egyptians were into milk and honey as well. Moses was born in Egypt, as you know. All of God's people at that time were under heavy bondage in the land of Egypt. Um, and the Egyptians were very familiar with milk and honey. They had a lot of it in Egypt as well. And so when God said to Moses, a land that floweth with milk and honey, it's something Moses would have been familiar with. And the Egyptians, they uh, used it, used honey to sweeten their foods and sweeten their wine. They've kept bees for maybe 5,000 years in Egypt. They've also used uh, honey in particular for some medicinal uh, properties and also as an embalming material as well. Apparently, they used it as a love potion. <laughs> Boy, the things you can do with a jar of honey. But the Egyptians also used milk and honey in their religious rituals. And this I found interesting. In their funeral ceremonies performed for all the Egyptians, except maybe for the very, very poor, the poorest Egyptians, milk, it was chanted, should never be far from the mouths of the dead. Now remember, this is in accordance with the Egyptian religious beliefs back then. And not only, not only that, but they said honey was the Lord of offerings and celestial food, for it is sweet to the heart, it opens the flesh, knits together the bones, gathers together all the parts of the body, and the dead drink the smell of it. End of quote. It's pretty rich. But um, Egypt was well familiar with milk and honey. And here's the Lord telling Moses, I want you to go back and get my people and bring them to a land of milk and honey. And I think that the idea in their minds was something like, well, that's going to be a good place. God wants us out of this place and He's going to take us to a place of our own. But there's more to life than what can be seen with the eye and I'm sure you'll understand and agree that there are physical, visible things of life, and there are invisible things of life as well. An idea is an invisible thing. You can operate on someone's brain and you'll never find an idea. It's invisible, isn't it? 
There are many invisible things in life. It's only the fool that would deny the unseen. And I'm referring right now here to the unseen spiritual world. And there are actually some amazing and wonderful things in the unseen spiritual world that we would call milk and honey. And God makes these things available for anyone who is interested. Anyone who will. And so let's have a word of prayer. And we're going to study the subject of the land of milk and honey. Heavenly Father, help us to have ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Please, I pray, Father, you would grant to us all the gift of faith to be able to believe what you have written. For it's only what you have written, that's what matters. The words and the philosophies of men come and go. What they once believed, they no longer believe today. And what once they never believed, well, now they cling to. And it's always shifting sand. But we thank you that we have your word. The word of God, rock solid. It never changes. You have put your mind in print when you gave us the Bible. So please help us to learn some truth today and give us faith to receive it and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now in Exodus chapter 3, your Bible's open, and verse number 8, we have God telling Moses, he says, For I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey. But God didn't stop there. I want you to notice what else God said was in this land that flows with milk and honey. Unto the place of the Canaanites. Now you count them on your fingers as we read them, okay? And you tell me how many you come up with here. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. How many do you get? How many? Yeah, the whole bunch of them. And these were the people that were inhabiting this good land, this place God was going to take his people to. Do you think those nations, those six nations, were ready to say, oh, here's the keys to our kingdom. Come, take us over. Is that what you think? I don't think so. I think that when God finally got his people into Israel, there were a few battles that went on. And so right up front, God was telling Moses, I want you to tell the people that I want to take you out of bondage and bring you to a good land, a large place, a place that flows with milk and honey. But there's also these six nations in there. I just want you to know that up front. So God wasn't trying to fool them or pull, pull the wool over their eyes. The people of God had been under hard, cruel bondage in Egypt for many, many years and so the sound of a land that flows with milk and honey must have sounded good to them. Now milk comes from what kind of animals? Cows. That's the first one we think of. But what other kind of animal produces milk for human consumption? Goats. And there's another one. Sheep. Yeah, cows, goats, and sheep. And where does honey come from? The bees. Oh, we got that one. Now cows, goats, and sheep must eat eat well in order to produce good milk. If they don't eat well, they're not going to produce good milk, if any. And so they must eat well in order to produce good milk. Bees must find plenty of flowers and blossoming trees in order to make good honey. If there's no flowers, if there's no blossoms with nectar, 
no honey, right? That makes sense. And so God says the land he wants to bring them to is flowing, flowing. The word flow means to run freely like water, an abundance here. And though, therefore, milk and honey told the people that this land that God had for them had a huge number of dairy cows and goats and sheep and had a lot of beehives. And that meant that there was a lot of good grazing pasture and a lot of good fruit trees. And therefore, the inhabitants of that land, the six nations, they must have been enjoying a rich lifestyle. That's what they would have derived from a land flowing with milk and honey. Today, we might, we might not say, well, we're going to go to a land that flows with milk and honey. Now, some of you have come to Canada from another land. When you heard about Canada, did you hear about the milk and honey? Is that what brought you to Canada, was the milk and honey? Or did you hear about a land with a lot of fine automobiles and everyone has cellular phones? <laughs> you know, when you hear things like that, you think of a, a rich place with nice cars and cell phones and everyone's got these. Oh, <laughs> that's sort of the equivalent of saying a land that flows with milk and honey. When you talk about fine cars and cellular phones, usually people have a pretty good cash flow to afford those things. And if they can afford those things, they can probably afford some nice places to live and some nice food to eat. Canada is a prosperous nation, and that's a two-edged sword. It's good, I, I suppose, on one hand, but on the other, we sure get our eyes off the Lord. Isn't that right? It sure is easy to get your eyes onto the things of the world here in this country. And we have to be careful of that. I thank God for the blessings that he's given us. But I know that the blessings are not where he wants us to put our eyes. Our eyes need to be on him at all times. Well, the children of Israel, what they did was, when they got into the wilderness, they sent these 12 men into the promised land. They called them spies. 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these were uh, important men. And they were sent there to to check it out, check out this promised land and bring us back a report and let us know what you find. And so, I would like you to turn now to the book of Numbers. Go to Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13, the 12 men were sent out to search out the land and bring back a, a report. So, chapter 13, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, of every tribe of their fathers, shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. And all those men were heads of the children of Israel. Now we'll go down to verse number 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain. And verse 18, And see the land what it is and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. 
and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. That's interesting that Moses would say that. Um, and what cities they be that they that dwell in, uh, whether in tents or in strongholds. And verse 20, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. And that would have been somewhere around June, July. Um, something like that. And so here they were told to go up and check it all out and come back. And we get to verse 27. And the men have come back after 40 days. They've come back and they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us. And surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. And of course they had a large cluster of grapes from a place called Eskol. And this cluster must have been big because they put it on a pole and had two men carry you know, the pole on their shoulders. And uh, apparently it was, I guess, too big to put in a sack or something. So they carried it. And they brought the fruit of the land. They said, boy, it really is a land that flows with milk and honey. And all 12 men agreed uh, with what God had already told them, that it was really a nice place. But 10 of the 12 men emphasized not the milk, not the honey, not the cows and the sheep and the goats, not the fruit trees and blossoming flowers, not the rich pasture lands where everyone could, uh, could uh, take off their socks and shoes and run around barefoot in. No, they emphasized the enemies. God had already told them up front that there were six nations there. And that's what the ten spies got their eyes on. They emphasized the em enemies. They emphasized the opposition. They emphasized the hardships. And they said, it's too much for us. We cannot do it. That's what they did. Now it's true that whenever God offers a blessing, the devil is right there to try and oppose that blessing. That is very, very true. I think that marriage is a wonderful blessing of God. But isn't it true the devil tries to get in there and destroy marriages? Isn't that the truth? And I think that children are a wonderful blessing of God. The Bible tells us so. But isn't it true the devil finds ways to turn those children against the parents and the parents against the children and even children against children? It's true, isn't it? Whenever God offers a blessing, the devil is there to try to oppose that blessing. He tries to make us think it's not worth it. He tries to make us think it's too much trouble. He tries to make us think there are too many battles in order to get those blessings. And therefore, he encourages us not to enter, not to even try. And that's exactly what was happening here in front of us. Now, it is true that there were some battles, battles to be won in the promised land. That was very true. The book of Joshua describes in some detail some of those battles in the promised land. But the book of Joshua also shows us the tremendous blessings that God gives to his people when they will follow him and enter into the promised land. You know something? With the Lord's help, we can overcome anything. Now that's a very important thing to keep in mind. With the Lord's help. The moment you and I leave the Lord's side and go to the world's side, that's when we'll begin to lose 
When we leave the world side and go to the Lord's side, that's when we will begin to win. It's always been that way. God is in control. Folks, there is a physical promised land for the Jews over in what we call Israel today. But there's also a spiritual promised land, just as real. I said earlier that there are physical things of life and there are invisible spiritual things of life as well. And only a fool would deny the invisible spiritual side of life. I've spent 47 plus years of my life researching the invisible, understanding the spiritual things of God. I can tell you, they are as real as the physical world we live in. Now, what are some of the unseen spiritual blessings in the spiritual promised land? Well, number one is the full assurance of knowing we're going to heaven. That alone makes it worthwhile. So many people live their life in wonder and doubt. What will happen to me after I die? I sure hope there's a heaven. And some people, they're too afraid of consequences after they die, and so they choose to be atheists. Some people choose to be atheists because of that reason. There are many people who don't want to talk about death and what's after death because they, they don't know, and they're afraid. God doesn't want us living like that. God has full 100% assurance for anyone, man, woman, young person, this is a blessing of the spiritual promised land I'm telling you about. That's why every man, woman, young person needs to enter into the spiritual land. Another term for the spiritual land, we could call it the family of God. God's family. Every one of us here today, we came into this world one way, didn't we? None of you here came from another planet. Someone might look like they did, but trust me, they, they didn't. We all got here the same way. We had to have a mummy and daddy in our history somewhere, and that's how we got here. And that's how our mummy and daddies got here. And our grandmas and our grandpas, we all came here the same way. Okay? God has a family. And the only way we can be part of God's family is one way. You'll not get into God's family by getting baptized or lighting candles or saying, Hail Mary. So you've got to visit with the Pope. You've got to, to bow in the presence of His eminence and you've got to kiss the ring on His hand or something. That's not going to get you to heaven. If getting to heaven, you, all you had to do was meet the Pope and kiss His ring, why then did God have to come and die on a cross for us? There's no reason why God would have to leave heaven and come and die for our sins if all we had to do is, is get in line and kiss the Pope's big toe. huh? If all we had to do to get to heaven was get baptized or light candles, there was no reason whatsoever for Jesus to have suffered. They beat Him almost to death and then they nailed Him to an old rugged cross. Jesus is God in the flesh. There was no reason whatsoever if all we had to do to get to heaven 
was keep the golden rule, keep the Ten Commandments, be a nice person, be a good citizen, pay your taxes, take the dog for a walk, be a nice neighbor, do the best you can. All that, if that can get us to heaven, there's no reason why Jesus had to die on the cross. I'll tell you, the first, I believe, was the first of the, the big blessings of the spiritual promised land is full assurance of knowing you'll go to heaven. If you're here today, or if you're watching online, and you do not know for 100% sure that you're going to go to heaven, chances are you've never entered into God's spiritual promised land. You've never been born again into God's wonderful family. You may be a wonderful person, a religious person, a Bible reader. You may even get on your knees and pray. But if you've never been born again, you see, Jesus is the one who came from heaven to earth. He's the one who told us. God came to earth and said, ye must be born again. That's what he told us in John chapter 3. Either we believe God or we don't. A second blessing of this spiritual promised land is the blessing of living this life, living close beside our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For many people in this world, Jesus Christ is just a, a flippant term they say when they stub their toe or hit their thumb with a hammer. That's all Jesus is to many people. But I'll tell you, for many of us, He is precious. When I was in high school, I didn't know the Lord as my Savior. And a high school friend of mine, who was a Christian, who was born again, looked me in the eye and said, Jesus Christ is my best friend. And I looked at him like he was from another planet. And I didn't understand how in your right mind can you say that? How can you be friends with someone who's dead, let alone dead 2,000 years? Hey, all right, okay, hey, uh, Alexander the Great's my best friend. Yeah. I didn't understand. He was telling me the truth. But at the time, I didn't understand. You really can have a best friend, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, a greatest friend, is Jesus Christ. Real, not made up, not get in front of a mirror and convince yourself of some phony baloney. I'm talking real. That's a blessing in God's spiritual promised land. Third blessing is the ability to get answers to our problems right out of the book of God. The Bible has every answer to every problem you can go through. It's amazing. It's as fresh as tomorrow's newspaper. It's unbelievable what's in the Word of God. And I've been studying that book and reading it dozens and dozens of times and studying it in its original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And I've been reading commentaries and discussing things with other men who have done the same thing for 47 years. I am more convinced than ever before that the book of God is our one source. It's our instruction manual. Someone took the letters B-I-B-L-E and said, basic instructions before leaving earth. Genius. Wish I'd come up with that one. I can't come up with things like that. But I'll tell you, these blessings are some of the very first blessings that God will give to any man, any woman, who will come by faith through Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. 
And the Bible tells us that every man, woman, and young person needs eternal salvation. God himself came to earth and said, ye must be born again. So, if you're here today and you're not born again, you need to be born again. Make sure before you die, you're born again. Salvation is a good Bible word used many times. And it means saved from hell and saved for heaven. You see, folks, there's a heaven above and there's a hell below. And men and women are, are either saved and they're on their way to heaven or they're lost and they're on their way to hell. Salvation means changing your eternal destiny from eternal separation from God in hell to eternal coexistence with God in heaven. That's what salvation is. That's why every man, woman, and young person needs to be saved. Now here is what God's Bible tells us. Number one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means all of us have committed sin. If I asked you, have you ever picked up a gun, loaded gun, and pointed at someone and shot them through the head or through the heart, you'd probably say, no, never. All right, have you ever wished someone was dead? Oh, many times. Well, in the eyes of God, there's not much difference. Have you ever committed adultery? No, never. Have you ever had the thought of adultery? Well, you see, there is more sin committed in the heart than there is with the hand. Whenever we have bad thoughts, things that aren't right, you say, how do we know if they're bad? Would Jesus do them? What would Jesus do? Would Jesus do this or that or go to this place? Would Jesus go and buy that stuff and put it in his body? And you say, I don't think he would. Well, then neither should we. I mean, that's a very simplistic way to put it. But the truth is, all of us, men, women, and young people, all of us all over the world have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Point number two, the wages of sin is death. I'm taking these verses right from the Bible. The wages of sin is death. Wages, are that's your payment. You go to work, go to work for the ABC company. After a week, two weeks, whatever, you get your wages, your, pay, your paycheck. And there's a paycheck on sin. You commit sin, you get paid for it. What's the pay? Death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. If all it were were physical death, then Hitler did the right thing. He committed about as much atrocity as any human being could ever do. And what did he do? He put a gun to his head. Boom. And if that's the end of it, he could commit all of that wickedness and crime and then get off the hook, never have to answer to God for his sins. You'd say, boy, there's injustice. There's injustice. Well, truth is, men may die physically, but they, they don't die spiritually. They live on after. They, they're still alive. Hitler is still alive. Not physically, but he's still alive in a place called hell. Now, I've never met the man Hitler. He died before I was born. But I sure feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for anyone who ends up in hell. Because hell is a place of eternal consequence and damnation and separation from God. Hell was originally prepared not for human beings, but for Satan, the devil. That's what hell was originally prepared for. And it's just sad that so many people are following Satan's pathway. Well, God, 
He's for maybe little children and maybe little old ladies and goody two-shoes, but, you know, I got my own life to live. And I'm going this way. And that's sad. Jesus said that there are two ways in life. And one way is very broad and evenly paved and very popular, but it ends up in hell. And then there's another way that's kind of narrow and kind of a little bit crooked and a little bit difficult to walk, but that's the truth. That's the good way, and that leads up in heaven. The wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God in hell. Number three, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift. Did you catch that word? The gift. It's not something you pay for. You can't get baptized enough times in order to purchase heaven. A gift is what you receive or you reject. One of the two. I've been given gifts where I've received them gladly. Other gifts I've rejected. You've probably done the same. Can you imagine God himself offering you eternal life? Offering you the gift of heaven. And you saying, no thank you God, give it to someone else. I don't want it. Can you imagine the lunacy? People in hell beating themselves for their, their crazy decision. And yet that's the truth. People get to hell because they reject heaven. That's what happens. But the gift of God is eternal life. He will give it. Give it. Not earn it, work for it, deserve it. He'll give it to whosoever will. Point number four. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means any man, woman, young person. You don't have to have been born in any certain country. You don't have to speak any certain language. You don't have to be a certain height or a certain weight. You don't have to be of a certain culture or or ethnic background or social status or anything. If you're a human being, God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. That means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way you can do that is if you drop your backpack of sin and guilt. You come to Jesus and you admit to Jesus what he already knows about you, that you've committed sin. He knows about every evil thought you've ever had. He knows about every broken promise you've ever made or you've ever bro- promise you've ever broken, pardon me. He knows about every evil thing that you and I have ever done, ever. He knows it all. The thing is, He died on the cross and His blood can make you clean. You can't make yourself clean. You can't wash yourself and wash your sin away. You can't do it. Men have tried. They can't do it. They've crawled over glass. It doesn't help them. They've beaten themselves to unconsciousness with whips. It doesn't help. They've made so many promises to God, but every promise can be broken. No. Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. And so we can have eternal life, but it comes through the person of Jesus. It doesn't come through communion. The, uh, the priest can put the host on your tongue until the day you die, and you'll still end up in hell. You need the actual person of Jesus Christ to forgive your sin, come into your heart and be your Savior. And that's as close as a prayer away. The thief on the cross turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. 
And Jesus answered him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Any man, woman, or young person can become part of God's family. God isn't prejudiced. God isn't bigoted. God isn't persuaded that, you know, one way or the other. He loves the world. Well, so the promised land, we're talking the spiritual promised land, means entering into the family of God. But like they say in the commercials, wait, there's more. <laughs> and there is more. My wife came to know the Lord Jesus as her personal Savior when she was a little girl back in the 1960s. I came to know the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior when I was a teenager in the 1970s. But it wasn't until May of 1995, that's 27 years ago, that both my wife and I learned that there was so much more that God wanted to do for us. He wants to do it for any Christian. Now listen carefully. God wants to give so much more to any Christian man or woman who will enter into, listen, a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. I can tell you, 41 years in the ministry, I haven't seen it all, but I've seen a lot. And I can tell you there are a lot of born-again Christian men and women who have not entered into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus. You see, the early apostles, that's what they did. They entered into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. And with the exception of Judas, who never was a Christian in the first place, he never was saved, he ended up going to hell. But the others, the other eleven, they inherited such incredible blessings from God. We look upon the apostles with ooh and ah, their closeness with the Lord and the things God used them to do in this life, and they're rejoicing. Well, God will do the same with any Christian who will enter into this part of the spiritual land, and it's the master-disciple relationship where you get in the yoke with Jesus and you say to Jesus, you're the master, I'm the disciple. You're the teacher, I'm the student. Teach me, Lord. Disciple me, Lord. And any Christian man or woman who will do that will be the benefactor and will benefit. And as I say to you from personal experience 27 years ago, it was on Monday, May the 15th, in the evening, that my wife and I, by faith, before we went to bed that night, we entered into the master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. And I cannot begin to tell you what blessings. Have there been battles? Yes, there's been battles. Not between my wife and I, but between my wife and I and the devil, and my wife and I and the things of the world. And we've had crazy things happen, and we've had to deal with that. But the Lord has given us power to deal with these things. You know, when, when men have pushed our heads underwater, the Lord popped our head back out, like a cork, back out. We'd get pushed down again. Up we'd come again. Blessing of the Lord. Nothing that we did, we can't swim. But the Lord made us like cork. We can't sink. It's wonderful to be bulletproof. And you can be spiritually bulletproof. 
entering into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I want to encourage you today. You see, Hebrews chapter 4 says these words to saved people. It says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. This is not the people of the devil. It's the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works. And that's exactly what happens. When you become the disciple, he becomes the master. You cease from your own wisdom and your own power. Now you look to the master to train you. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Monday night, May 15th, 1995, before we went to sleep, my wife and I got on our knees and we entered into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've had blessing after blessing. They usually follow battle after battle, though. They're just being honest with you, just being up front. The master-disciple relationship for a Christian and Jesus Christ will result in many wonderful things, including great peace and wisdom and freedom from fear and certain material blessings and in some cases physical healing. But how many Christians are there that are ready to enter into that master-discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ? How many? To enter into a master-discipleship relationship with Jesus means some changes. It's going to mean some battles. It's going to mean faithful church attendance. It's going to mean tithing. It's going to mean spending time alone with God every day in the prayer closet, reading the Bible and praying. It's going to mean learning to become a soul winner. Some Christians will say, well, I'm not interested in those things. Then I can tell you right up front, you'll never enter into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, I will. <laughs> you won't. Oh, I want to. Well, I don't think you really do. Because you have to count the cost. You know, one of our, the sons of our church, let's say, David Almonia, he's working with the Canadian Armed Forces. And they've just stationed him overseas. And uh, he's, he's there proudly serving. And I'm so proud of him. I pray for him daily and I hope you do too. Pray God keeps him safe. Can you imagine someone saying, I want to be in the army. I want to be part of the Canadian Armed Forces, but I don't want to be stationed overseas. Oh no. Uh, give me a gun? No, I don't believe in guns. You can keep your guns, but I want to be an army guy. You'll never be an army guy, will you? You have to count the cost. In order to become, well, in order to enter into this promised land that God has for Christians, you need to count the cost and enter into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. That means you've got to give up certain things, and you've got to be ready to be taught and led by the Lord Jesus. Now, many Christians have done this. Many. And they'll all tell you it's worth it. It's worthwhile. But never be afraid of the Lord's invitation because the Lord invites all of us, all of us who are saved to enter into this relationship with Him. So, these are the battles that I've outlined. The devil 
is already trying to convince someone here today not to enter into a master-discipleship relationship. Oh, you do that after you've, you've struck gold. After you've made your fortune, you become independently wealthy, then you can enter into a master-discipleship relation with Jesus Christ. Wait until you've completed your university education, and then you can enter into a master-discipleship relation. He's always telling you to put it off. And when he gets you to put it off one week, he'll get you to put it off another month. And after a month, he'll get you to put it off for a year. And hopefully by then, you've forgotten about it. But if the pastor should remind you, he'll get you to put it off another year. There were people, men who came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you anywhere. Remember that? Remember reading this? And Jesus answered them, well, you know, the foxes have holes. The birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. Oh, well, then in that case, maybe later, Lord. I'm just telling you the truth, folks. When you enter into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ, you can expect to have the most exciting life, but you will have battles. But be encouraged, because the battle is of the Lord. He will give you the victory. He will give you the power. Your happiest life on earth will be as a Christian in that master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. So, back to the 12 spies, and we're, we're done here. I'm going to tell you a quick story, and we're done. But all 12 spies, they all believed in the milk and honey, right? We saw that in the Bible. They all believed, no question about it, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. But how many of those 12 spies were ready to enter into the promised land? How many? Two. The other 10, they didn't emphasize the milk and honey. They emphasized the giants. They emphasized the battles. They emphasized the hardness of scaling the walls of those cities. They emphasized all the negatives. And they ended up turning the hearts of the children of Israel that day. And it was just a horrible day. Because that's when they had to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. Boy, hindsight is 2020, isn't that right? Oh, if only I knew what I know now. Boy, I'd like to go back a year. I'd like to go back 40 years and I'd like to start my life over. I'd avoid certain pitfalls. I wouldn't say what I said to that man, that woman that canned my career. Boy, I, I would do this, I would do that differently. We know that now in hindsight. And the Israelites, after they made this terrible decision to believe the ten spies, they regretted their decision for the next 40 years. That's the truth. How many were ready to enter in? Only two of them. The other ten basically rejected the promised land. I ask you today, if you're here, you're saved, you know you're saved, how many of you are willing to enter into God's spiritual land? to enter into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do that? Well, I think I'd like to think about it for six months. Your decision. I don't think you'll decide to go in, though, after six months. How many Christians would enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ? It'll mean certain battles, but is it worth it? Yes, you can take my word for it. I would do it all over again, only I would do it years and years, decades earlier, to enter into the master-disciple relationship. Got to tell you a quick story, and we're done. 
True story. Ken Davis, he's still alive. He's a uh, Christian conference speaker. And he told a story once when he was in college. He was asked to prepare a lesson to teach to his speech class. He said that uh, he was to be graded on creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of his speech was The Law of the Pendulum. He said, I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs the swinging of a pendulum. The law of the pendulum is this. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes? If you don't understand it, come and ask me after the service today and I'll try and explain it to you. But the pendulum, once you release it, it can never come above this point. It can never go past the point. Uh, because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it'll fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until finally it comes to a rest at the bottom. The point of rest is called the state of equilibrium. So, Davis said, I attached a three-foot string to a child's toy. You know these spinning tops? Little child's toy? He used one of those. He made a mark on the blackboard and released the top. And sure enough, it did not come back to the mark. And it finally settled down to the bottom. So, he finished with the demonstration. He then asked how many of the people in his class believed in the law of the pendulum, that, he, that believed it was true. And everyone raised their hand. Everyone said, yep, we believe it. And so did the teacher too. His teacher raised his hand. And so the teacher started to walk toward the front of the classroom thinking that the lesson was over. But in reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large, crude, but functional pendulum. 250 pounds of metal weight were tied to the end of this parachute cord that Davis had hooked up previously. He invited the teacher to come up on the platform and to stand with his back against the wall while he brought this weight up just under his chin. And he said, let's prove once again if the law of the pendulum is true. And the teacher stood there with beads of sweat on his forehead. Ken Davis released the 250 pound weight and sure enough, it swung clean to the end of the room and started coming back. Well, he said to the students, if the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release the metal weight, it'll swing across the room and return just short of the release point. And he said to his teacher, you'll be in no danger. And so, he had looked his teacher in the eye. He said, sir, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And of course, there was a long pause and the teacher said, yes. And so, he released the weight. It swung completely to the end of the room. 
and started coming back toward the teacher. Davis said, I never saw a man move so fast in my life. He literally dived from the table. And then, stepping closer to the class, the audience, he asked the class these words, Does the teacher really believe in the law of the pendulum? And all the students answered, No. And they were right. I ask you if you believe in the law of the promised land that as a Christian, if you will enter into a master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ, that He will bless you because of it. Even though there will be battles, that He will bless you. And you must decide. You must decide today. I've given you an opportunity, an open door if you will. All 12 men believed about the milk and honey in the promised land, but only two of them actually believed in it enough to go in. Now, if you're here today and you're not 100% sure that you'll go to heaven based upon your repentance from sin and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is calling you, my friend, He's calling you to enter His family, His promised land, through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And you can do that in your heart today. If you're here and you're a born-again Christian and you're not in a regular master-disciple relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you with all my heart to enter into this promised land and claim the milk and honey that God has waiting for you. Blessing after blessing often comes battle after battle. But is it worth it? Well, I sure think it is. But you have to decide yourself. Now I'd like to invite you to stand to your feet and we'll have a word of prayer together. Would you do that please? Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.